Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hi, it's good to be here. My name is Suzanne Finnamore. And I'm the author of Split, a memoir of divorce, and I'd like to read from it. The chapter name is Flight. By the time N left, running out of the house one evening with nothing but the clothes on his back and a voluminous gym bag, I had loved him for seven years. The die was cast. I see it now as if it is freshly happening, the two of us facing off on a stage set, each in our appointed place for a major scene. It was a cold Friday night, the end of the week, a time primordially loaded for endings, and therefore immaculate, befitting. My husband was methodical about everything he chose to do. He also had the trick of making set plans seem spontaneous. I am wearing a fitted white shirt rolled at the sleeves, black cigarette pants and red lipstick. I'm also wearing shoes with spike heels, something I normally don't do around the house. I want height. I am aware that I've been waiting for him, have recently started to prepare for his homecoming, as I would prepare for a first date. In our builder's grade kitchen, I am alone, yet still conscious of posture and makeup, makeup I now wear every day, a dubious bow to vanity. Putting on my face, my mother bunny calls it. War paint is what I thought, as I applied sheer foundation an eye pencil, brushing my eyebrows upward in small, intense strokes. I've never been good at discerning shades of color. Makeup seems to complicate this problem, engage it. I stay with neutral tones. I check my lipstick in the chrome toaster. I am distorted, but the lines are all there. Precisely at 6.10, he walks through the rain-spattered oak door and kisses my cheek. I breathe the scent of his neck and something else— some nascent excitement or fear. As he kisses my cheek, his sinewy hands are already on the martini shaker, mixing himself a drink. I take two chilled glasses out of the freezer, placing them next to a bucket of crushed ice. I spear olives, three, onto red plastic toothpicks, drop them into the clear, icy liquid, just as he is pouring out his first cocktail. He tells me I look beautiful and walks swiftly downstairs to our bedroom to change his shirt, though we have no plans that I am aware of. I have been greeted and kissed in the smooth, normalized way of a television show housewife. I am now waiting for some form of recognition that I exist beyond the second dimension, that we both exist together. The fact that it has come to this is not outside my consciousness, but it seems to be muffled. I love N, and he loves me, Although not as much as I love him, I accept this. We have A, our toddler son, and I am playing it through. And yet here he comes, here it comes. He capers up the carpeted steps. Slung over his arm is a charcoal wool blazer, his best. It is then I feel the fear itself, a small ghastly tapping at my right shoulder. I hand him an oversized frosted martini glass, his second in maybe ten, five minutes. He takes it with one hand, the other busily buttoning his fresh dress shirt, tearing out the paper collar stay, 
and letting its ragged length fall with uncharacteristic carelessness to the floor. In my mind, this is the formal beginning of the end. His visibly urgent need for fresh attire, the copious vodka, his odd pheromones, the unauthorized appearance of the blazer. Yet I know that this is not the real beginning of the end. This is illusion, a false start. It is only my primitive marking in time. The real genesis is forbidden to me, vis-a-vis N's inability to confess even the mildest transgressions. His beginning of all this, both psychologically and physically, has been sliced with great precision from my wifely vista. Theoretically, he wants his way without inflicting pain or suffering. This I know. Yet he is saying something, my husband, actually several things at once, each more shocking and flamboyantly absurd than the last, like watching dozens of clowns exit a Volkswagen. We're different people. I stand with a jar of garlic-stuffed olives in hand, motionless, waiting for exactly how, in his estimation, different we were, and why he is speaking to me as if someone else, a third party, were listening. Outside the kitchen window, redwoods loom silent and apart. A master shot would establish a simple wood-shingle house perched atop Madrone Canyon in the town of Larkspur, population 12,014. A split-level hodgepodge of bright rooms and jutting decks, a vase of kaya lilies splayed like a white hand at the kitchen windowsill. Through three large bay windows, we see a robust male and a statuesque wife and mother meeting companionably at the end of the day in Marin County, home of an elite group of perpetually concerned wealthy Californians who materialize en masse at the Sausalito Art Festival each Labor Day, purchasing signed lithographs, Zen fountains, and wind chimes. Our house is modest by county standards. It is small but well-appointed with a two-car garage. There are no illegal rental units, no recreational vehicles, and no aluminum siding or driveway mechanics. Everything is up to code. Although our refrigerator is leaking, I can see a small pool of ice water at its base. I have to stop myself from cleaning it up as he stands there. I deserve happiness! And said, raising his voice. Escalation, oh dear. N orates with a large, clear martini glass, passing through my airspace, vodka sloshing onto the carpet in a gesture of freedom. Yet I was lulled by his predictability. Once again, without preamble or rational discussion, he was stating his inalienable human right to have happiness in his life. By now, this was a popular theme in our home. N's happiness a kind of precious yet difficult pet. It had become repertoire and had lost some of its original force. Although I'd never said so, it all sounded as whimsical as a lost pinwheel. He, we, have everything. Gainful employment, a home, health, a sound child, food, warmth. It ought to be enough. He shouldn't force us all to go delving on some quixotic hunt. It's his happiness, I thought, slightly hysterical by now, Therefore, he should find it on his own. Had he looked everywhere? I almost laughed. A small titter escaped my lips. From this brittle emotion, I stepped off, as from an unseen curb, into a different life. I hear N say divorce, and then the word lawyer coming at me, a javelin. I put down the olives and place my hands in my hair, tugging at its roots to create a counter-sensation. 
I'm not crying yet, but my throat burns. Updike claims if you talk about divorce, it will happen. Yet we were not talking about it. I was being informed, and he was leaving at once. Intellectually, I knew this was often how it was done, quickly, like a careful exchange of hearts, a swift transplant. A heart can stop beating for a while. One can still live. Realizing he has a stage, N warms to his topic. The term visitation is brandished. He is talking about visiting our son, A, as though he were a wonderful exhibit. A custodial schedule can be arranged, child support payments made. I realize with a wave of nausea that this is what his happiness has meant, a euphemism for my removal. Hearing his tone, I know there is no possible chance of rebuttal or rescheduling. He is on a live feed to his new life. No matter what, you can't stop me from seeing A, he suddenly flashes. Yet here he was, preparing to leave A. It made no sense. I'm going insane. Yes, that's what's happening. Good. Insane. I never would. You're his father, I say, as if explaining a minor detail that he has forgotten. My eyes are two X's in a white oval. My face, I feel certain, a vulgar cartoon. Because this isn't happening. It's some sort of exceptionally realistic holograph. A hallucination, perhaps, caused by the antidepressants he urged on me last winter, or biochemical warfare. Aghast to hear the words that involuntarily passed through my lips, I stammered out the requisite clichés. Why? How can you do this? What about the baby? Why can't we talk about it? Where will you go? His reaction was a perfect zero. He had successfully flatlined, a technique he'd mastered by age 40. I had started talking Swahili, and N did not speak Swahili. He was sorry, but not regretful. Why should he know Swahili? When someone says he wants a divorce, there is an inevitable exclamation point affixed to that statement, as in the statement, help, or fire. Therefore, there will be no thoughtful or complete answering of questions, because an exclamation point has rendered all questions moot. Fire! In a move best described as cinematic, I slide slowly to the floor, to the white entryway tiles of our home. Like Alice, I feel suddenly small, surprised to have gone through the looking glass. Our house, I think. We knew it was ours before we'd even seen it. The very street hummed our names, Two weeks back from our honeymoon in France, eight days wherein he fed me bouillabaisse from Michel's in Nice, and we made love every night, often without waiting to get our clothes off. As my mind performs this nostalgic synapse, it simultaneously grasps for some way to make Anne stay within the door. You've seen a lawyer? I finally ask, admittedly slow on the uptake from my position on the floor. I spy a tiny plastic Tyrannosaurus rex wreathed in dust behind the umbrella stand. Our son, I think. It seemed to me that I was having some sort of stroke, a kind where one's senses are alive and crackling, but articulation impossible, no words to get the needed relief. N brushes my question aside. He stares at a point on the ceiling and says, I want a divorce. He is playing to the rear seats, firmly repeating words he'd said earlier, four words I was already busily trying to erase, unhear. Irrationally, I think, will you marry me? Four words. I want a divorce. Four words. I would like time to count the letters as well, but there is no time. 
I can see by his face that there is no time. I stare at his crooked and beautiful Basque features, oddly bright and alive with a defiant pleasure. His silver hair shines with some newly purchased styling product that comes in a hard stick. There is nothing soft in his usually supine body. It is drawn taut. Also, there is an echo, the word lawyer, bouncing about in my head, and divorce, the brute ugliness of the words covering me in a brackish film. His mouth is a thick line that rebuffs conversation or obstacles. He puts on the blazer, shoots his cuffs. I sink a bit further because I know that this gesture, not the upcoming words, is a sign that professionals have been called in to help and achieve what is now his immediate goal. I know at once that were I to look, there would be a business card from a law firm in his wallet. And not just any law firm. He has come to a time in his life where he will trust only the services of crisp, seasoned professionals, dry cleaners that deliver, hotels with concierges, and local butchers who will pre-order certified organic free-range turkeys for Thanksgiving. I blink, pull a deep breath in and out of my lungs. Somehow I am not getting enough oxygen. He says, I have a lawyer, someone in Kentfield. Oh, dear. Kentfield, the rich white epicenter of the entire chocolate box county. The very words seem to exude money and nefarious intent. Kentfield already in motion. I ingest this fact. I clamp my hands onto my thighs. The pace was brisk. I had to focus to keep up with all the new information. I could not look away from the slightly bulging veins in his neck and his cocked head, pointed at me with firm intent. N isn't just a vice president at a major marketing firm. He is a very skilled technical writer, used to having things his way and knowing the precise terms for everything. He knows what's coming out and what's going out. We had one of the first rear projection televisions. It was N who taught me that technology was sexy. He had been described in conversations more than once as the king of new media. I was summarily presented with another factoid, a second bullet, what the police call a double tap. It is meant to ensure that the assailant is firmly down. You should get the papers next month. Even now, after much reflection and puzzling aloud in the dark, I honestly can't say why that very evening, accepting the martini with three olives, he told me I looked beautiful. Doubtless it was part of his sudden overall madness. He said it with a small smile, and I said, thank you. Afterward came the wardrobe change, and a few minutes later he said the rest and walked out, looking natty. Goodbye, darling, he said, and then drove away, his automatic window sliding up. The axis of my world snapped, sending me into a place that was black and where there was no time. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit kqed.org. Slash writer's block. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.